Heyo, and here we go. Welcome to another episode of We Talk Music. I am your host, Mr. Brett Podcast, and I am blessed and honored to have a gentleman that I have been looking forward to talking to for many, many years. He's played with White Snake, and he's played with Ozzy Osbourne and many other bands. But I mean, the main reason that we are talking to him, here talking to him right now is because of his work with Quiet Riot. We have Quiet Riot's bassist, Rudy Sarzo. Rudy, how are you? Uh, Mr. Brad, how you doing? <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just wonderful. Like I say, I, I mean, like being a fan of yours for a very long time, and and it's super exciting. We got a chance to see you guys actually um, this year in Edmonton uh, for the K Days show for 40 years of Metal Health, and and that was an amazing show. So yeah, yeah, uh, our 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 singer, uh, yeah, w- w- it was challenging changing the words from from American to Canadian. So that's you know the lyrics of the song. So that was that was a little challenging, you know? right? But yeah, I mean, forty years. Would you would you have thought that way back in the day? Oh yes, of course. I knew it all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just written on the. <laughs> that's right. It's in my contract. Yeah, yeah it's gonna be. Okay. Uh, no, if you have no idea, you don't even think of if you're going to sell one record or <laughs> you'll be alive for the year. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you try your best to, you know, to do it, to do the right thing and, and keep stay on course or even come back. If you deviate too much, you know, get back on, on track again, uh, all by the grace of God, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, I mean, the, the, the certain things that you can do um, to help manifest that, because you can only manifest what you think. If that, if if being around to celebrate forty years of mental health in the band Choir Riot, it's not something that you think about. It's not going to manifest itself unless it becomes divine intervention, which which trumps. And it's any of your imagination, like case in point, you know, when I, people ask me, so, you know, like the same question about, you know, mental health, 40 years later, we're celebrating it. This is a, the, the first debut by a metal band to reach number one on billboard magazine. And so all of that, no, when I w- wanted to become a professional musician, which just, I just want to make enough money to be in an apartment and just uh, be on the road all the time. <laughs> well, God has a different plan, a better plan than that. One. And, and that's, that's been my, my, my life, you know, the better plan that I did not think of, you know. But definitely, yes, you, if, if you don't manifest it and if it's part of the, God's plan, then it will happen that way. But there's no guarantee. I mean, it's like, how can you even think of something that is beyond my imagination the the my experiences my career you know especially where i come from i i was i come, you know I'm, I'm from the caribbean you know and i moved to miami and you know i'm a child of the 50s i was born in 1950 and culturally you were expected to do the trade that your parents were in you know, my parents had better hopes for my brother and me. Uh, my dad worked extra hours to afford for my brother and me in Cuba to go to private school because eventually they, they wanted me to, you know, have a degree on my brother, the same thing. But uh, 
you know, during the revolution, 1961, we moved to, to the United States and then things, <laughs> we were, you know, we, we, we became, uh, we adapted the uh, survival mode quickly in order to be able to survive as a family and as individuals, you know, by that, I mean me in school trying to adapt to a new language, a new culture, a, a new set of bullies <laughs> who were mm. bullying kids who were not, you know, who had just arrived into the neighborhood, especially if, if you're a minority. Because there were very, uh, we moved to West New York, New Jersey in 1963, and there were very little, uh, small, very small community of Latinos there. It was mostly uh, either Italians, Irish, Jewish, kind of like a, 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 uh, uh, spread coming from what New York, Manhattan, you know, was, is, you know, but I'm talking about 50 years ago was. And uh, so, you know, there was a lot of challenges, but then again, you just, you know, you have to like embrace them and, and, and eventually they will make you a stronger person. You know, we're here on this planet to experience things. And believe me, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I sing things. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. <laughs> now, over the, over the course of those years, like, especially when it comes down to the experiences and seeing things like that, was it ever hard to accept God's plan for you in that case? Like, did you ever accept? Except God's plan, like, like, did you ever oh, deviate or anything like that? Uh, you know, it's that's an interesting question because me and me and religion, uh, religion, not not God or or Christ or in mm -hmm. particular, but but a religion. I grew up in a Catholic environment, family. I mean, I think my grandparents were more Catholic than my parents were. Uh, maybe my parents rebelled to what I experienced, which was the the scary aspect of being a catholic i'm talking about a strict catholic you know like uh life-size statues of christ at the cross bleeding and and the saints all over the uh, the house and things like that and and as a child i was very impressed you know it was very impressive you know scary to to be in that environment. So I think that my parents kind of like got the message themselves. They didn't tell us about it, how to, how to feel about it. They just, they were, put it this way, we didn't have life-size statues of any of the saints or Christ at the, at the crucifixion in our house. So, but we were still Catholic. We still consider ourselves Catholic. We follow certain things like no meat on Fridays. And, and then of course, you know, um, uh, good Friday and, and all of that. Uh, so it wasn't, an, and, and then when, when I, when I will have my first confession was my uh, <laughs> getting ready for my baptism, you know, the, uh, not the baptism, but the uh, catechism, catechism, the first confession, you, okay, you're baptized as a baby. And then what, what is it when you actually communion? I'm oh, sorry, yes, the communion. communion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, communion. Okay. The communion. So uh, when I was getting ready to receive communion, uh, I had to confess, go to the confessional, which I'd never done before. I was a kid. I was like seven years old. So I walk in and the priest goes, so, okay, uh, confess your sins. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm seven. Yes. 
I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't drive. I mean, I don't do, do drugs. I'm seven years old. <laughs> what sense? That you're a sinner. You know, say, so kick me out of the confessional, basically. So ever since I've had like a uh, confrontational uh, uh, <laughs> um, uh, relationship with, you know, priests and stuff like that. Not, not all of them, but, you know, I was just put in that position. And I, you know, I have a lot of questions that sometimes I, I, I get answers to by going through a different medium rather than, you know, going the Catholic route and more just the Christian route of things, you know, interpretation from the Bible and, and so on. So uh, I, I have a, a, a very strong uh, relationship with God. I, I like to get rid of these degrees of separation having to go through here, 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 here to get to, to God. So I just keep it through Christ to God and, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and I agree with you completely in that regard. And, and it's just because it's always interesting, especially knowing the lives that you, that you lived being on the sunset strip and doing all that stuff and just, just how it allows you to, you, to maintain your faith throughout all of these things. Oh, uh, you know what? I wrote about her in, in a book that I have. It's called Off the Rails. Off the Rails, it's basically, yeah. yeah. it's basically at the end of chapter one about making peace with God at my lowest point in in my career. I mean, I didn't even have a career then. I was just sleeping on the floor. <laughs> the most career thing I had going for me was that I was actually in, in, a, in Sherman Oaks, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood adjacent, you know, and, but you know, this is where things were happening. So, you know, people ask me, how did I do it? I said, well, you know, the first step you got to do is you got to burn the ship. There's no going back to where you came from. This is it. That's all we had 45 years ago when I arrived in LA first time, 76, then I ran out of money, came back 77, ran out of money again. Then I came back in 78. And that's when I joined Quiet Riot, the, uh, the Randy Rose version of the band. And we were not making enough money to, uh, you know, to make a living, why everybody had extra, extra jobs, you know, uh, Kevin had his thing going on and, and Randy and Drew Forsyth, the, the drummer at the time, they both taught at Musonia, Randy's family's, uh, uh, school of music. And I got to teach there too. And I, I had all other jobs, you know, so it, it was tough. It was tough, but, uh, you know, Never give up. And at my lowest point, going going back to that, I made peace with God. I said, uh, you know, through my prayers, I, I made an agreement. I said, uh, you know, as long as my fingers keep moving, that's my sign that uh, that I should keep playing. And, and But if I never make it, that's fine. My relationship with God, it's way, it's, it's, it's the deepest thing in my life. It's at the very top of everything. Absolutely. No, that's wonderful. I mean, when, when you talk about, you know, especially those, those early days and then, and then when did you know that the bass was your instrument? Recently, recently, and I'll tell you why. Okay. When I, when I first started out noodling around, you know, just wanting to be in bands, it wasn't even like, okay, I want to be a professional musician. No, I want to join this gang of guys with musical instruments and each block and where I was living in Miami, I had, I had just moved down from New Jersey. And I had my own little band up there, but this one was 
New Jersey was more uh, urban and Miami was more suburban. It was like neighborhoods, you know, and each neighborhood had its own band, each side of the street, uh, each, yeah, each block. And so I had to join the band on my block. And I went there, I had it. Nobody had equipment. It, you know, the drummer had a, a telephone, yellow pages book and drumsticks. That's <laughs> drumsticks. Yeah, real drumsticks. That, and he probably stole. <laughs> and that was that was the drums. And then to ensure that I was going to join the band, I actually went out and bought an amplifier with enough inputs for the whole band to plug in. Because what happened is this, I... Uh, I went down with an acoustic guitar and then I say, introduce myself to the garage band that was actually in a garage. And I said, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I just moved here from New Jersey. I want to join your band. They look at, they look at the guitar, six strings. And I go, Oh no, we got too many guitar players. If you want to play in the band, you got to be a bass player. And I go, what's that? And they go, <laughs> they say, it's like playing a solo through the whole song. I said, sign me up. I'm in. <laughs> oh, that's how, but see, years later, during an interview, somebody, I, as I was telling the story, I, I came to a realization, wait a minute, I became a bass player because somebody told me I had to become a bass player in order to do this. Uh, I, and I, I got really upset. I go like, I can't believe this. So I actually started like digging out all my guitars because I was playing guitar first, right? And then I started playing the guitars and I got bored. <laughs> I'm going like, no, I'm not a guitar player. I am a bass player. So I needed that. I needed that to go through that moment of doubt about should I am I a bass player or what in order to confirm, yes, I am a bass player. There's no other instrument that I'd rather play. I, I have a bunch of guitars. But yes, I play them just, you know, to to find some chords, you know, to write somebody. But as soon as I find out what I need to out of the guitar, bam, I go right back to the bass. I even have a bass guitar, six string, feeling like a guitar, so I can play guitar <laughs> on the bass. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite instruments, yeah. Because I got, you know, both worlds. I got the guitar tuning on a bass guitar. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. How, how so often? I, yes. Well, just how often do you play that uh, that one? Like, do you play it live at all? No, but I've I've done a recording. I did a recording with it. Uh, it's a Leslie West tribute. We did "Theme from Imaginary Western" with uh, Eddie Ojeda, Mike Portnoy, Dee Snider, and it wound up on a Leslie West tribute album. Ooh. Like a bunch of musicians yeah. did a tribute to to Leslie. And it's available. I mean, if you want to listen to it, it's on YouTube. I bet it's on Spotify. I just go to YouTube. It's easier. And just go uh, theme from imaginary Western. Just do D Snyder and it will come up. And I'm playing that bass. Um, six string bass. I just wanted to. Because since that song, yes, it's a it's a Leslie West. He played that in, on Mountain with Felix Papalardi singing it. But it was actually Jack Bruce who wrote it. Okay, so I'm going, yeah. okay. So I thought, this is a double whammy for me. I, I love Leslie. I've jammed with him. Um, Randy Rose, uh, that was one of his biggest influence. And, and then Jack Bruce. He's like, you know, 
Jack Bruce during the 60s, you know, as soon as I heard him and say, I want to play like that. So he was an incredible influence on me. So I said, wow, let me do something special here. Let me take out the sixth string and I'm going to play. I'm going to, I respect Jack Bruce so much and Felix Papalardi that I did not even try to play what they did on the record. I'm aware of what they play. I'm aware of this, of the musical landscape that they created with the bass during their recordings. But I wanted to do something original, just like they have been original. I wanted to be original too. I thought that would be the best tribute I could, I could uh, pay to both of them, originality. So I just did it my way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. I got a chance to see Leslie West before he passed. And wow, I mean, what an unbelievable player oh, yeah, he was. Definitely. Just. I mean, just that work, but, uh, you know, you've got such an interesting style too, when it, when it comes to a live performance, I mean, you're definitely in amazing physical shape, but, but like, just, just the interesting, like watching you and the way you kind of hit the guitar or hit the bass, like, it's just like, do you ever worry about like missing notes or is that just kind of part of the show? I would probably miss more notes if I become aware it's it's a flow. You just let it go. You do it. It's kind of like I catching a wave when surfing. I don't surf, but I figure it will be something like that when I see people describe what surfing is. You know, catching the wave and just ride ride with it and go with it. If you start to think about it, but I mean, because I would say most of what I do, I've been doing it for all my life, as far as I can remember. I was doing that in clubs before I started doing it in in on big stages and arenas. You know. I started doing it just to keep myself uh, awake. Club club shows, I mean, especially in Florida, they started at 10 and you were done by four o'clock in the morning. 45 on and 15 minutes off then you for six sets a night. And, and the, those last two sets, especially the last one, you're just trying to stay awake. And in my case, I had to go to school after that because I signed up for college and then we started playing clubs. So I had no, when I signed up, I got like the early morning classes and I couldn't switch them to later in the afternoon. It was too late in the year. So it was like, Oh man, I, this is horrible. So I'm trying to like sight read. And I got my eyes for a club. <laughs> it was horrible, <laughs> but I did it. Well, yeah, and that's and that's a tribute to you in the in and of itself. I mean, the fact that you managed to do all of those things to get yourself to where you wanted to go, and and I mean, you know, necessity, the mother of invention in this case. Well, it's survival again, survival mode. I rarely do. I mean, I'm, I'm in the only time that I really make a conscientious effort to to switch off the survival mode is when I'm creative, because it's very hard to create during survival mode even though some of the greatest albums you're going to ever hear the okay the first every band's or artist first record i bet you the majority of those songs have been written when the artist is starving it's a starving artist things that his music is going nowhere because he's being rejected by everybody and he's in total survival mode because he doesn't know if he's going to be able to pay the rent next month, right? Those songs are written under that stressful environment. And it's usually the best record 
of any artist, the first mm -hmm. one, because you have like five years to start collecting music <laughs> that you've written all this time. You know, it's not like you, I haven't heard of an artist. First of all, you can't get a record deal back in the day without really good songs, a, a, a good batch of good songs that came from being writing them for at least five years, right? I never heard of an artist who got signed without that many great songs to make up an album and then just starts writing the album after he gets signed. No, no. That's why a lot of sophomore records are not as strong as the first one, because if you have a hit with your first record, that means that you're going to be on the road for, especially in the MTV era, from a year mm -hmm. to a year and a half, uh, four or five videos, which means that you're going to be, you first you start out as an opening band, and then the record goes big, then you come back again as a, as a headliner. I've been there. It's happened to me many times. It happened to me with uh, Quiet Riot and with White Snake, you know. And uh, the only difference between White Snake and Quiet Riot was when when Quiet Riot started headlining, we only had one album, Metal Health, and that's all we could draw from. And then there was some music that never made it to Metal Health that we started pulling out and playing them live just to make up for. Instead of having 40 minutes set, you know, we, we need mm -hmm. half an hour. Well, let's take a longer drum solo and guitar solo in there, you know, type <laughs> of thing. And yeah. <laughs> but uh, but with White Snake, it was different because White Snake had been around. So they had a you know a bunch of records that we could draw music from just to fill fill in, you know, not have to play. Oh, because you know, there was the 87 record that we were promoting at that time. So we played. Most, I would say, just about everything from the '87 record, and then we added music, songs from the previous albums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would make sense for sure. Yeah, now, slide it in, since I, Saints and Sinners, and yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. they had a large collection at that point, yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to mental health, and especially like, how was it that that you knew that this, you know, when it comes to just the cohesion of you guys at that point? to be able to create metal health, which did go to number one. I mean, cause there's a lot of bands that, that I don't think they ever had the same cohesion. I mean, what made this group special? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And there was for sure. Uh, okay. And I'm just going to go from like the oldest to, you know, to the most, so I'm going to start in 1972. I met Frankie Benelli in 1972 on my birthday, November 18th. And uh, we started playing immediately in South Florida. Then we moved to Chicago area and we did the whole Midwest. Then we moved to LA in 77, trying to keep it together. And as a rhythm section, and we both ran out of money. So we had to separate it. Then I came back in 78. So in 77, we went to LA, broke up because we couldn't afford it. And he did his own thing and then my own thing. I went to New Jersey, got some money together, went back to in 78 to LA. And by then I joined the Randy Rose version of Quiet Riot. But Randy, I mean, Frankie was always in the peripheral. Yeah, they knew about Frankie. I tried to get Frankie in Quiet Riot at, towards the very end. Uh, that's how, and then Randy actually, when Randy got the, the Aussie gig, the, the the band that was rehearsing was Dana Strum, who is the one who brought Randy to Aussies and Sharon's attention. Then you have Frankie because Randy requested Frankie and you had Aussie. So 
so Frankie had always been in that in that family, you know, and uh, and then in, when Randy joined Ozzy, uh, Kevin put his own band, Dubro. Quiet Riot ceased to exist as as a, as a as a name as a band. So Frankie, after I joined, once I joined Ozzy. Uh, that was in 1981. Frankie eventually wound up playing with Kevin in Dubrow. So when I went in to do the first recording, and this this is the timeline. We're talking September of 1982. Uh, Randy had passed. Uh, what, what happened was that Kevin wrote a song for Randy called Thunderbird. It's the last song on the, uh, the album. And he wrote that when Randy left Choir Riot to join Ozzy. After, after Randy passed, he changed the lyrics of the last verse to reflect Randy's not being with us at, at, anymore. So, uh, so going back to, so, so, so here I have, I have been playing with Frankie all this time on and off. Then I started playing in Dupro and living with Kevin. So I, most of the songs except for three, come on, feel the noise. Mental Health and Don't Want to Let You Go. It's like Black Cadillac, which was written by Kevin, but was written during the era of where Randy was, mm. you know, the mental health. Yeah, era, that's uh, right. The, the Quiet Riot era with, with, with Randy in it. Okay. So the, the rest of the material was Dubrow music that I already had been playing with Kevin. So one thing you have to, you know, take into consideration was when I went in to record just one song, Thunderbird, which I knew from playing it in Dubrow, I was still a member of Ozzy, but I had lost the joy of making music because after Randy died, you know, my, my choir riot consciousness, my family, it just wasn't there anymore, you know? And because, you know, I, I, I was, I was in a band with some real, uh, you know, pros, people who have been around for a long, long time, like Ozzy with Black Sabbath and Tommy with Black Oak, Arkansas and, and Gary Moore and Pat Travers, you know, so we're talking about real um, considered veterans by then. They have been mm -hmm. around for at least 16 plus years, you know, and me, I was just young. I was just, just a kid. I was trying to find my way, just like everybody else in Choir Riot was trying to find our way, you know, and so I lost that. And when I went in to record that one song, well, Frankie was there playing drums. Kevin, you know, right there is two, two people who were so important to, to that consciousness that it felt like home. Carlos, I had never played with him before. I don't even recall meeting him before, but I knew of him because he was in a band called Snow. And they used to play in the same circuit, you know, the uh, the clubs in, uh, in on the Sunset Strip and so on in LA. And uh, but you know, going back to to that, and and that's what happened because we were we were our, we had one focus in life at that time, and I'm talking about Frankie and Kevin because I I live with both. I live with Frankie and I, and I live with Kevin, and all we did was just concentrate on music. And then we talk about religion, politics, who was going out with who. Just, that was not in our radar. It was all about how we're going to make it, how we're going to write that great song, make that great record, how we're going to get signed, how we're going to be able to make a living out of this. There was a lot of questions that needed to be answered. And every effort was targeted at answering 
you, you know, getting an answer to those questions, you know. So that's that's what's on that record. There's a lot of uh, integrity. The album is dedicated to the memory of Randy Rhodes. I mean, if you look at the back, that's it says right there. Uh, I played, uh, except for two songs, Metal Health and Don't Want to Let You Go, which were actually brought in from Carlos mm, from his okay. band Snow. And Metal Health was originally titled No More Booze. No more booze. What a drag. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that fell into place. You know, you, you had an album that was very uh, organic, very honest. We were not trying to change the world. We were just expressing ourselves and we wanted to make the best record to dedicate it to the memory of Randy. Uh, again, it was... It was made under the survival mode because there was no money. There was, I mean, I had money because I had just gotten off the road with, with Ozzy and I saved my money. But the other guys, uh, they had to get gas money to get to the studio to record. We did the record on spec time, which means that when somebody cancels a session, mm -hmm. they bring you in the studio and they charge you a half rate for that, you know, spec time. And uh, so, yeah. You know, so that's that's what that's what I think is at the core of that record. A very honest, uh, in you know, a uh, and we had a lot of integrity going into making that album because we wanted to make sure that it was the best record that we dedicated to a memory of Randy. Well, I, and I got it right here. There it is. There it is. Because, yes, I mean, I love this album, and it's and it's and it's just incredible. I mean, it's meant so much to me in my life as well. I mean, certainly, like Quiet Ride as a band. I mean, you know, everything. It's it's like down the line. I mean, I've been listening to Quiet Riot for as long as this album's been around. So, I mean, that's yeah. that's that's pretty dang amazing if you think about it. But yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and you know, with me, it was before I became a member of the band. I I was impressed by the band, so I wasn't like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to join these guys and see what happens. No, it was like, wow, this I just joined the best band in LA. Mm -hmm. So that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so then now, when with with the current lineup, I mean, I mean, Jizzy is the singer, and he's and he's fantastic. I mean, I've been a fan of Jizzy for since yeah. his early love hate days as well. Like, what's it like, kind of keeping that band together? Well, everybody wants to be there. That's the best. That's the best way to keep a band. You know, and just every everybody. There's no drama. Everybody's. Uh, very happy and very proud to be a member of, of, of the group. Uh, one thing we, as a band, we always are conscious about uh, celebrating each other's legacy. Like we do yeah. a, um, a love hate song because we're proud of Jersey. See one, one thing about Jersey, he, he comes from, he's like one generation removed from what we did in the seventies. He did that in the 80s. What Coy Riot did in the 70s with Randy Rhodes on the Sunset Strip, Jizzy did that in the 80s. So he gets it. He gets, he's the real deal. He's not a competition winner mm -hmm. from some TV show that, yep. you know, now it's it's singing with a band that they have no idea what how, how they got here. <laughs> so, 
And and another another thing is Kevin was a fan of Love Hate. He loved Jesus' okay. voice. He really he really respected. And I gotta say, Kevin didn't like too many bands. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know that that goes way back. You know, you know, way back to when I first met him. He was very like, cut and dry. I like these guys. I don't like these guys. You know, and that was it. Hey, that's his opinion. You know, and. Um, and also, Kevin really—he's the one who brought the uh, typo negative CD into the bus and says, "Check this out." <laughs> like, wow, that's different. <laughs> so Johnny Kelly, our drummer, was you know was the drummer in Typo. Uh, Frankie picked Johnny to succeed him, you know. And so these are guys that were there and got the approval from previous members uh, way before I came back. So I really respect that, and I'm, I'm re- and I'm really glad that that uh, you know Frankie and and Kevin picking Alex Grossi, our guitar player, who's been with the band over twenty years. You know, he picked them. You know, they were picked before I got there. So I respect that, and and I really enjoy playing with them. It really is all that I ask of them is is to be themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we're because you know myself. Uh, yeah, I'm being myself, absolutely, but I'm not trying to be myself who I was 40 years ago playing these songs. No, this is me now. I am, a, I mean, hopefully a better bass player 40 <laughs> years later. You know, I mean, I'm I, I'm a different bass player for better or for worse. That's the best way I can, I can put it. You know, some mm-hmm. people just say, you know, stick to what you played on the record. No. <laughs> Why? Do you do you eat the same way that when you were a baby? Do you have like a do you like drool all over the place? <laughs> basically, basically when you do your first record, that's your baby steps into the music industry. You know, so it's just like that. No, you know, I, I'm playing more mature now, more musical, more and more ideas, and more creative. And and being in your own band, you don't have to ask for permission. You just do it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll be the first one to say no, that did not work. I'm never going to do that again. But you got to give it a shot. You got to try it. Absolutely, and I love the fact. I mean, because that's the great thing about live music is that if we all just wanted to listen to the album, we could easily listen to the album. Yeah, and you would always get that. But that's the great thing about live yeah. music. You don't know what's yeah. going to happen, and you can yeah. you can try things. Yeah, and you know, and f- especially for us bass players, with very few exception, and that and that I mean that there's certain producers that make records that the bass is up front, more like a '70s record. Uh, most of us, you know, of our genre of music, the bass is not like the most important I- instrument or the loudest. Um, around the early '80s, it became the guitars and the drums. Mm-hmm. You know, the arena rock. So, you know, to me, a mix is like you have one pair of glasses and you give it to everybody to see a painting through. Okay, these are the glasses. This is how you're going to see. Sonically, it's the same thing. A mix is one person's opinion of what the band should sound like. The mixer. Of course, the mixer is hired by the record company because they have the last say. And sometimes the radio promo guy, and I'm talking traditionally, 40 years ago, will come in and say, no, I don't like the mix. I cannot get this get this on the radio on top 40. Mix it a little bit different. So sometimes you have like different mixes of the same song. So you have your, your AM mix, your FM mix, and then you got all these different other mixes that, that you're going to deliver. 
you know, you got your album mix and you got your single mix, you know, all of that. Uh, so, but still it's, they're pretty close and it's just one individual. So the promo mix that he's going to take to radio, that's pretty much, he's trying to please the promo guy. who's going to walk in in the station and say, Hey, uh, you see this come on, feel the noise. Uh, and, uh, the Thompson twins, can you, you know, because and back in the day, it was everything. You had, it, when, when I was growing up, we had Johnny Cash and Deep Purple. Back yeah. to back. Paul, Paul Anka, you're having my baby. And Janis Joplin, you know, songs back to back. So it was, it was broad. The spectrum of music, you know. So by the 80s, bass players were competing with bass synthesizers. A lot of the mm. the English new wave bands, a lot of you know that sound. So it was kind of like, okay, we have this song and this song. Okay, we have this song by the uh, Simple Minds, whatever, right? It's got heavy bass synth, all that. Then comes this rock song. It sounds like they changed the station. It doesn't have the same body, the same fullness because there's no bass synthesizer. So they they tried to fix that. Uh, by adding drums <laughs> and guitars. A lot of guitars, a lot of drums. Okay, now we can compete. Okay, there's a continuation here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's fascinating for sure. You, yeah, you know, because yeah. as a fan, you don't necessarily think about that. You just think about like what you grew up with was this, this yeah. sound. And then, but that's the thing, like I love it myself when the bass is actually represented in an album. Because when I, when I can hear all those instruments and it's just like, oh, there's the bass. Because, you know, there's some amazing bass lines, especially in mental health. Oh, and it's, and it's just like, like, I love being able to hear those and disseminate that, you know, in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the song Mental Health and Don't Want to Let You Go were recorded before I joined the band. Uh, Chuck Wright. And mm -hmm. it was during the, during the uh, Dubrow period. And but the rest of the record, that's that's me playing on that, yeah. But yeah, I just I just meant the album, not just the song. Yeah. In that case, yeah, I know, but, I know, but, but yeah, that's it. But that's that's the issue when you say mm -hmm. mental health. Are you talking about the album, or you're talking about yeah, that's a, about yeah. the one song? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Guess, yeah. Yeah. Now, are you planning on doing an album with this current lineup? Well, we released one song uh, about a year and some months ago. Um, I can't hold on, mm -hmm. and it features Kevin. It features the that's the last vocal Kevin has that we found that was unreleased, that it was uh, lost in Alex's computer. <laughs> like wow. that's how he found it, and uh, we uh, we put up Frankie's drums on that, and I play bass on it, and uh, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's a great song. Absolutely, yeah. I yeah. mean, I love it. Yeah, yeah. and then. And then, of course, you guys have uh, some great shows coming up. I mean, uh, so mm. talk about the whiskey coming up. Uh, that's this week. And then Alice Cooper's Christmas pudding. And, uh, you know, just before the show, we were going to talk about yeah. talk about Christmas pudding and just how what it means to you in that case. I mean, especially charity work. Yeah, uh, I, I'm also involved with another charity that's based out of uh, Phoenix. And actually, it's a Calgary. Oh, okay. Uh, it's called Bank B A N B A N C Benevolent Artist National Charity, and we've been doing it for about seven years. Uh, we support like the first few shows that we ever did. It was in support of the 
uh, the National Music Center in Calgary, which is one of my, it's, I think it's my favorite music uh, room. By room, I mean it's, it's a building. And to actually, not Stevie Wonder's first synthesizer, Tonto, is mm-hmm. housed there. There's like rooms. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it. But oh, I'm, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. I I'm listening mean, that for, for yes. people who are watching, you know. Oh. Uh, it definitely, when you, anybody who's watching this, this uh, interview, this conversation we're having, if you happen to be in Calgary at any time in your life, go to the National Music Center. And across the street, it's a King Eddie and it houses the Rolling Stones mobile unit. Mm-hmm. You can actually go inside. I listen to the records that were recorded there going through the speakers. It's a trip, you know? So, so we, uh, so we've been doing that. Also, we've been working with abuse, native women. There's a, a, a foundation and um, the homelessness and a lot of music education. Um, one show um, we supported uh, Napoleon uh, animal shelter, Emily Harris's foundation that she has and she performed with us. So, you know, we were diversified. And this last uh, February, we did an event at the home of uh, my co-founder, uh, James Carter, and he lives in DC Ranch. And we did a, uh, in conjunction with Alice Cooper's foundation, we did the show there and we raised some money too. So, uh, yeah, I just spend some time in, uh, in uh, besides doing the uh, the Christmas pudding, uh, this year in uh, in Phoenix, and I love it. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's awesome. Now, uh, of course, you guys have the February twenty second show in Calgary. Are you planning on visiting uh, Studio Bell and the Music Center then? It depends on logistics where where we're at. Uh, we're flying in the day before, so if I have, if the hotel happens to be working distance, yes, I'll definitely go. Uh, yeah, and I'll bring the guys with me because they'll freak out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to play every instrument that's available. In that room, you know? <laughs> the last time I was there, they had uh, Getty Lee's. Uh, uh, oh yeah, his sport. his bass collection. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, bass collection. It was, yeah. it was amazing. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. And then they have Randy Bachman's uh, guitar oh, yeah, collection yeah. and stuff yes, like that. So, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. The, I mean, the history that goes through that center is is truly incredible. It is incredible. And, and the boards, the studio boards that are installed in mm-hmm. separate studios in the building. It's just amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, like super happy when they when they put that into Calgary, because uh, what a difference yeah. it's made. Absolutely. Well, you know, Rudy, I just want to say thank you so much for for your time. I mean, it's been wonderful. And, the, and you know, I respect you so much. And and I just want to say, you know, uh, heartfelt thank you for being on the show and just a heartfelt thank you for uh, you know for all your life and legacy thank you so much brett such a pleasure speaking with you by the way if you happen to be in calgary when we play let me know you'll be my guest oh yes well absolutely i mean we are totally going to be there so there's no worries about that um and in fact going to be um on friday we're going to be at the whiskey Great. I will definitely see you there. Yes, because yeah. uh, because I would love to get you to sign my Metal Health album, and, uh, okay. and I think it would be awesome. It gets a little crazy at the whiskey. Okay, so, well, uh, well, we're also at, at Alice Cooper, uh, yeah, at the Christmas oh, pudding. So. That might be the better, yeah, okay. a little bit more, more, I don't know. 
Yeah, because <laughs> we're we're we're, uh, we're sponsors of the Alice Cooper Christmas pudding as well. So so we'll be there in the Fantastic. in the VIP section. So uh, so you know, I mean, we're we're excited too. I mean, we love the charity aspect as well on the show. So that's that's the time to do it. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, okay, Rudy, cool. such a, such a treat, and thank you so much. So thank we you, will sir. see God you soon. You. Absolutely, you too. Bye bye. Bye now. Bye.